one of the commentaries that I've been using in preparing for uh, these sermons on Acts is from Dr. Willie James Jennings, who is an African-American theologian. And it's interesting, he, he always asks questions of a passage that I wouldn't have asked. He always helps me see something in a text that I wouldn't naturally have seen. Um, today's passage is a good example of that. We're, we're further on the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas are on a well-known Roman road. It was called the Via Sebast. They're going uh, to a city high in a plateau in central Turkey, and the city's name is Iconium. And when they get there, they do what they always do. They go into the synagogue. They begin to share the gospel, much like we saw last week. And there is a strong response. Luke says that they spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed, and, and many did not. And we see a, a strong reaction both ways. Luke says that some of the people who didn't believe poisoned the minds of their friends against the, uh, the, the apostles' message. Later we'll see that the whole city was divided over this. And Dr. Jennings asked this question, what would it have been like to have been one of the Jews in the synagogue when the two apostles came in with this new message. He says, lest we too quickly read Paul and Barnabas's enemies as pure reprobates, we must remember the anxieties of the diaspora, the loss of identity, and the confusion of peoples. The two apostles are, from the perspective of many faithful Jews, frightening insurgents who are drawing the people of God into sinking sand. Now, the diaspora was uh, a scattering of the Jewish people 500 years earlier all over the Roman Empire. And you'll recall their worship used to be in Jerusalem. Their security used to be within the walls of Jerusalem. But after the diaspora, the scattering, they found themselves having to fight for their existence, fight for their traditions. And so that's when the synagogue was developed, kind of a little taste of the temple in Jerusalem. And their whole life was fighting against all the pressures of the, the outside city that threatened to dismember their faith and their traditions. So the synagogue that Paul and Barnabas walk into is, is, is just desperately trying to hang on to their tradition and to their belief. Now, they would have been thinking about a Messiah. Uh, the rabbis of the day, if you're interested in this, uh, N.T. Wright's books cover this extensively. There were great debates going on at the time about uh, the Messiah and what he might look like, but none of them understood the Messiah to suffer on a cross and die. And so when that became part of Paul's message, as we saw in his kind of classic model sermon uh, last week, many Jews simply could not embrace it. It seemed like heresy. It seemed like false teaching. Now, why does Paul go to the synagogues first? Well, he's not trying to start a new religion. He's not trying to start a church. He is trying to 
bring reform to the old people of God. He's trying to introduce them to the new wine of Jesus Christ. He, he has come first to the Jews to reform Israel. And that's exactly what Jesus did as well. Jesus came to reform uh, the old wineskin, to change, to transform, to breathe life into what had become old and stale. Jesus came to reform Israel. Uh, the word reform just means to change something, improve it, correct it for the better. Uh, the 16th century Reformation came to, to change or reform the medieval church. Now, some historians think that about every 500 years, God sends a, a reformation into his church. Others uh, think that it happens more often than that. Um, and a surprising number of leaders are asking the question, as we look around at what's happening in the church and what's happening in our culture and different signs that seem to indicate that old ways are are, are dying and yielding for something new, many are asking, are we on the brink of a new reformation? Is something new changing in the church? Um, and, and maybe maybe you're one who hopes that it does. Maybe you've been hurt by the church or disappointed in the church, and, and you need it to change perhaps you'll be part of the new Reformation. And, and if that is who you are, if you're listening tonight, I just want to encourage you, God, God knows your need, and that's why he is always reforming his church. He knows you've been hurt and disappointed, and he's trying to renew his church to, to better serve his people in the world. Well, I heard a podcast from a faith leader this week who was so hurt by Christianity that he left the church entirely. Uh, he, he explored the wisdom of other traditions and learned a lot from them, and he talks a lot about them on his podcast. And, and now, uh, in his opening season for this year, I heard it yesterday, uh, he, he said that after kind of exploring all these different alternatives and and deconstructing totally and abandoning the church for a season of his life, that he felt like he needed to come back now, not to the old, but to try to experience Christianity in a new way. I'm hearing a lot of stories like that. There seems to be change in the wind. Well, what does that look like? How would we know if that was happening? How would you know if that was even starting to play itself out in and around you in your little pocket of the of the church. Well, we don't we don't know because it's changed. We don't always know what it's going to look like. But what we have here in Acts 14 is a little story of a little reformation. And so what we can do tonight is just briefly look at this story and and, and try to identify what are some of the characteristics of change? What, what are some indicators that the Spirit might be reforming or transforming his church? Well, let's start. This story is, uh, takes place in Iconium. Now, what comes to mind when you think of Iconium? Probably nothing. 
<laughs> because we don't know anything about Iconium. The only quote I could find was from the Roman historian Strabo or Strabo. He says it was a cold city bare of trees with little water. <laughs> and it's stuck up in a rugged plateau in, in the middle of a, of a pretty barren area. The point being, the center of power at this time was way back in Jerusalem. Where the real Reformation is happening, where things are really starting to change way out uh, on the edges, in the margins. And uh, that's something, I think, that, that, that happens when God starts to change his church, that, that it usually doesn't happen in the centers of power. It often happens out in Iconium, out in the margins, uh, uh, away from the center of power. I think that's why people like Professor Willie Jennings is so so interesting to read right now. He does have institutional power. He's a professor at Yale, but he writes from the perspective of a minority, someone from the margins. And so he will see things in a text that I'll miss being in the majority culture. Martin Luther was an unknown monk from a, a, a Wittenberg uh, when he was writing The Fire That Became the Reformation. He was not in the center of power. And it makes me wonder who the next Martin Luther will be and where she or he may come from. He or she may be in Latin America or Vietnam or India. If you find yourself a little bored with the faith right now, uh, maybe look for a podcast or a blogger or a writer from a culture or a corner of the kingdom that you're not familiar with. A lot of times renewal, reformation will come from people on the margins of power. And just to bring it a little closer to home, God has given us this new spiritual home where we're going to go and abide in Christ and bear much fruit for him in our community. Now, how will we know this is going to be a change for us? We're going through our own little transition and reformation. How will we know what that kind of ministry should look like? Well, maybe that vision won't come directly from the pastoral staff or the shepherding team. Maybe the most profound ministry we begin in that space will come from a college student or a high school student. Change comes from the margins. Now, verse 3, Luke summarizes their ministry there in this Iconium. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So a lot of controversies stirred up, but they stay for a long time. And what would that have meant? Well, they were staying with the only people they knew were the Jews that were a part of the synagogue. They were their people. So there were lots of hard conversations with the, with the Scripture about, yes, this is the Messiah. No, that's not the Messiah. This prophecy means that. And that's what happens when you try to bring a, a reforming word to a community. You have to stay in the community to have the hard conversations for a long time, or the change never happens. And it is hard. But Paul will come back two more times, and he will say, and it late in his life, in 2 Timothy 3, about how hard it was, he tells them, 
You followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So he looks back at his time in this community as persecution and and suffering. And I think one of the principles is that if you're called to bring a word of change to a community, you don't just kind of drop it in a bomb and move on. You stay for a while, even though it's hard. Now, we tend to think of reformers as great heroes, and sometimes they are. But a lot of times God brings reformation to the church one individual at a time who just brings a a small word, a small piece of change, a, a doctrine that needs to be recovered, a practice that needs to be renewed, an aspect or a vision of ministry that needs to be championed. And they faithfully come and bring that word year after year. And if you want to do that, you need to remain a long time in your community. That's what the apostles did. Now notice the content of the apostles' preaching. They spoke about the word of his grace. That was uh, the summary of the gospel message. Uh, The Greek word for word, logos, means the, uh, the big idea, the message, even the doctrine. Grace is a feminine noun. It means kindness. It has the idea of a loving benefactor leaning towards a weaker person to share a benefit. Uh, The gospel is about this kindness of God, this default setting of grace. One of the things that always happens when the Spirit starts to reform the church is there is a renewal of grace. The doctrines of grace are restored. Grace is preached clearly and grasped firmly. You know, a generation ago, um, there was this renewal of grace in the church in in the early 90s. There were these wonderful writings on it. Chuck Swindoll wrote, Grace is amazing. Philip Yancey wrote, What's so amazing about grace? Jerry Bridges wrote, Transforming Grace. Henry Nowen wrote, The Return of the Prodigal. Brennan Manning wrote, Abba's Child. Neil Anderson wrote some great books on grace and identity. It was just a time when everybody was talking about grace. There were problems in the church then. But at the same time, there was a tremendous renewal going on around grace. So where will the next revival of grace begin? You know, we need that because the church so quickly slips into law. Paul writes the churches in Galatia, the region where Iconium was, and he says in in the first chapter, Ten years after visiting and planning the church, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So there's always a need for a reformation of grace. Well, then we read in the middle of the summary that they were speaking for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done with their hands. And those are just evidences of God's supernatural power. 
um, that God gives to his messengers to affirm their, their witness, to authenticate it. And often, often when God starts to reform his church and he starts to give leaders a new vision or a fresh word, he authenticates their message with signs and wonders. And that might be literal signs and wonders, or it may just be a a palpable sense that God's presence is in this. And you might think of a time in your spiritual life when you're in a church or a parachurch group or a youth ministry, when God was reforming that ministry and you knew it. Well, I, I bet one of the things that was happening was a palpable sense of the presence of God. God authenticates the change, the renewal, the transformation by signs of his presence. Well, the result of all of this is a bit of chaos. The people of the city were divided, Luke says. An attempt was made to stone the apostles. They fled to Lystra and continued to preach the gospel. A reformation always involves a bit of chaos or upheaval. Change introduced to a community always involves some disturbance. So it's cold. Let's wrap up. Here are some of the signs that God is bringing change into the church, that God is reforming the church. Usually, reformation comes from the margins. Reformation usually involves a long season of hard conversations. Reformation involves the restoration of the gospel of grace. Reformation is often accompanied by an authenticating outpouring of the Spirit, and reformation is usually disruptive. Lord, we we humbly ask that in the areas where we need reformed, you would bring this work into our church and to the broader church as well. In your name, amen.